Let us pray. I'm most eternal and everlasting, Father. We are thankful this morning for your love and your mercy. We are thankful for the kindness you continue to show us individually and collectively. We know that you are a, a precious and gracious God. We cannot fathom the depth of your love, the riches of your grace, the riches of your goodness, the riches of kindness towards us. In every way, you have shown that you are a good God. For this, we're grateful. Father, we pray now that uh, you continue to show this group that you have assembled your kindness wherever they be and wherever they find themselves. We also request, Heavenly Father, since you control the weather and every element of the weather, we do request that you continue to Bless us with the blessings of rain while keeping any thing that may be harmful in this area from reaching us. We know that you are a God that can be counted upon because you have told us to call upon you and you will show us great things. You've asked us to call upon you in time of need and that you will answer and deliver to show that you are a powerful God. So we pray that you continue to do that for us as a, a people in this area. Father, we also thank you that we have been able to gather together to study a portion of your word. We realize that the human mind is incapable of understanding anything that is spiritual apart from the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So it is a request that God the Holy Spirit, the perfect communicator, who open our mind and speak to us so we can hear precisely what you have for us this morning. This is a request in Christ's name. Amen. We are continuing in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Well, we're dealing with excellency of love in, uh, in the church of Christ. He reads, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging symbol. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries, and all knowledge. And if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, and uh, surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now in our last study, we stated that the 13th chapter of First Corinthians is concerned with the subject of love. Consequently, we stated his message is a life characterized by love is more important than, I mean in the church of Christ, than temporary exercise of spiritual gifts. Now we stated that the message is to be expanded through three assertions, of the apostle that conveys the importance 
of love. The first assertion derived from this, uh, this section of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verses 1 through 3 is that the exercise of the gift of speaking in tongue without a life characterized by love is meaningless and that it gives a confused message. Now this assertion is derived from the sentence of First Corinthians chapter 13 verse 1 when it says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, they have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging symbol. Now because the word love appears nine times in this 13 chapter of First Corinthians, and because it is a primary concern of the chapter, we spend considerable time examining the Greek word agape that is translated love. Now after our extensive consideration, we concluded that the word as used in the 13th chapter of First Corinthians chapter 13 verse 1 has the meaning of strong affection and interest in the affairs of another. Strong affection and interest in the affairs of another. So with this meaning, we stated that we were ready to consider then what the apostle meant in the verbal phrase of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 1 when he said, But have not love. But of course, we run out of time. But the promise that we'll continue with it in, in today's study. So, with this verbal phrase is where we begin our study this morning. So, what does it really mean not to have love? It is to live a lifestyle that is not characterized by love. Not an occasional love for some people. We are talking about a lifestyle, a lifestyle that is not characterized by love. Not, again, an occasional love for some people. Now, this answer, however, is too general a statement. So, we need to reduce it to a level that is easy to identify with or to get handled on. We know that the opposite of love is hatred. All things being equal, a believer will not live a life characterized by hatred. Notice why I say all things being equal. Because there are believers who do. But all things being equal, that should not be the case. Since a believer who does so lives in sin. Not in fellowship with God. And or God the Holy Spirit. As he will not be controlling that individual. And the person does not understand that the spiritual life is a life that should reflect that the person is going to be in heaven where nothing sinfully exists. See, when people hate each other or hate other people, they are actually saying, I don't think I'm going to heaven. They may be going, but they just, that's what they're doing. Because if you're hating somebody who's going to be in heaven with you, 
What are you communicating? Because that somebody is going to be with you in eternity. So how are you going to wind up hitting that person on this planet? So, yeah, so it is something that uh, a believer ought to think about before he or she gets involved with any kind of hatred. Anyway, what we have said is basically what the Holy Spirit stated through the pen of the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2, verse 11. 1 John chapter 2, verse 11. 1 John chapter 2, verse 11 reads, But whoever hates his brother, when he says brother here, that means fellow believer, male or female, it doesn't matter. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. That's insane. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. Now, based on this passage, then a believer who claim that because a person does not hate a fellow believer, that, that means the person is, is living a life of love. So that what Apostle Paul wrote of not having love does not apply to that individual. A person can argue that. Now, it is to help us then to, be, uh, to do what I call to be truthful in examining ourselves that we want to explore the things that imply that a person does not have love. In other words, I'm going to be dealing with four things. That if you can spot that in you, you know you're not, you're not having love at that point. You're really not uh, being characterized by love. Now, exercising one's spiritual freedom in Christ regarding debatable matters in such a way that will cause spiritual problems to a weak believer or a believer who does not yet know much of the scripture. It's an action that implies not having love. In other words, if you exercise your spiritual freedom in Christ in such a way that they will cause problems for a weak believer or one who is not yet thoroughly uh, informed of the scripture, that will be showing that you have no love. Now the example I often use though, to illustrate when we talk about debatable things, it's not really that it's completely that way, but this, the example I always use is the drinking of alcoholic beverages. <coughs> now since the scripture nowhere explicitly prohibits it for the believers. So, suppose you live in a an area where many Christians think that it is wrong to drink such drinks. But you go ahead anyway to do so. Your action, though not sinful, will cause spiritual, uh, spiritual problem for such believers. So one of them is to become judgmental about you. If nothing is which they are wrong, but that's because you put them to it. And so, you should not 
then uh, think that you have not done anything wrong or that you have not caused problem for them. I mean, like I said, here is the thing. If you did that, think about what we just defined in the 13th chapter of the verse of 1 Corinthians about the word agape. Remember I said it is a strong affection and interest in the affairs of other person. So if you have interest on that person's affairs, then you will do something not to cause problems for them spiritually. I mean, we're going to see there are always people think about things almost absolutely. No, there are things that even when we make this kind of statement, you have to be careful about it. Anyway, so my, thing, my point though is that if you do so, uh, don't care because you're using your freedom, then at that point, you do not have a life that's characterized by love. So it is this kind of not having love that is conveyed in what the Holy Spirit through Apostle Paul uh, stated in Romans chapter 14, verse 15, where he deals with issue of food and so on. Romans Romans chapter 14, verse 15. Romans chapter 14, verse 15 reads, If your brother is distressed, that's just a fellow believer. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy your uh, brother for whom Christ died. Now the word distress here is translated from a Greek word that refers to causing mental or emotional distress. So it may mean something like to irritate, to offend or to insult. In other words, if what you're doing uh, irritates your brother, then that's part of what we're dealing with here. And when the context of what the apostle wrote, the issue was concerned with dietary laws in which some object to eating certain uh, foods because they are not aware that by Jesus coming into the world all foods are now clean to be eaten. Certainly there was food given to Israel not to eat. Some of those listed in Leviticus chapter 11. And that really has to do with health issue. God protected them. I gave you illustration of that sometime. Uh, God kept them. Don't eat pork. And today we eat pork because it's cured. But if you, if you take a raw uh, pork, depending on how it's raised, cut it and squeeze uh, something like lemon on it, watch what happens. And so you see, God was protecting them from all that. There are a lot of, you know, kind of eternal worms that can come from eating some of these uh, things that God told them don't eat. So he was protecting them. But they didn't realize that. And so some of them now, as believers, they didn't realize, well, Christ has paid, he said, all foods are clean to eat. 
And so they still have some problem with those kind of uh, meat. So the believer who eats everything there may cause problems to the one who does not or cause such a person to go against the individual's conscience. In other words, there are people who, for whatever reason, out of pressure, they will do what their conscience tells them not to do. In that way, you'll be offending your fellow believer. Anyway, the implication will be that such a believer then is distressed. So anyway, the point is that if a believer forms a habit of doing things that, though not sinful, will cause spiritual problems for other believers, that such action implies that the person does not have love. Now, we should, of course, be careful to differentiate doing what the Bible commands from that which is not directly commanded. See, love does not mean to go against God's word, to accommodate another believer, since love for God should trump over love for humans. That's the highest object of our love is our God. So your love for God should trump that of any, any other being. Now, so I'm saying then, that if you do what the scripture requires, but a fellow believer is offended, that does not mean that you do not have love. It doesn't mean that. Uh, for example, someone, a fellow believer, who is not cautious of his or her spiritual life, may do something uh, wrong and ask you to lie for him or her to cover that person's track. And you say, no, I'm not going to do that. Does it mean that you do not have love for that person? The answer is, absolutely not. You have the love for that person because you have love first for God. Because you don't want to lie, God uh, doesn't want you to lie in, in such, such situations anyway. So you obey God. And you show your love uh, for him in that you do what is the correct thing to do. The other person will say, well, you don't love me. It doesn't matter what they say. At that point, you are loving God. Anyway, so all I'm saying is, if anything, you have love because doing what God requires is how to demonstrate that you love him. Hence, it should be clear that when we caution about our use of freedom in Christ in such a way, not to cause distress to another believer, we do not mean using freedom in anything that is clearly required in the word of God, but only in debatable matters. Matters that can go either way. Now because, in that case, because there is no passage in the scripture that commands or prohibits a given action. So anyhow, the point remains then that exercising one's spiritual freedom in Christ regarding debatable matters in such a way that will cause spiritual problems to a weak believer or a believer who does not yet know much of the scripture. It's an action 
that implies not having laws. Now to fail to be understanding towards the failures of fellow believers or to fail to be patient with each other is an act that means that one who does so does not have love. That is what I said. That it should be that if you do not have understanding or you are not patient with a believer who fails in a certain way. It's not a blanket statement. It's in a certain way. Now it is this failure to show understanding or to tolerate each other's failures that cause the Holy Spirit to provide instruction through Apostle Paul that is recorded in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 2. Ephesians Ephesians chapter 4 verse 2 reads Be completely humble and gentle Be patient This is the next thing Bearing with one another in love now, tolerating one another is an essence of having love. Now, so, when a believer, when there is a failure on the part of a believer to be patient or to tolerate each other's failures that affect us personally, that's why I said they affect us personally, we do not have love. When you you know, it affects you personally, but you're not patient, you don't tolerate it. At that point, you don't have love. Now, because we are prone then to misapplying the word of God in certain matters, it is important to be careful to recognize that being patient or tolerable of others' failures does not extend to certain things that are habitually committed by a believer that should cause others to excommunicate such a person. I'm saying that while you may be patient with a believer that fails, it does not mean that you should ignore the clear instruction of the Holy Spirit the Apostle Paul had already written to the Corinthians about how to handle certain issues, as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 to 11. Now notice what I've been saying is that you have to tolerate, you have to be patient when a person does something that affects you personally. However, that doesn't mean we're giving a person a blanket uh, check in this case to write them anything they want. That we have to still balance that with a clear instruction of the scripture about certain uh, sinful conduct. So here is example where we have that. He said, I have written you in my letter 
not to associate with sexually immoral people, not all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. That is what is of this world. Now, in that case, you have to leave the world. But now, I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother. In other words, anyone who claims to be a Christian. Anyone who says, I'm a believer in Christ. He says, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard, a swindler. See, you have to avoid that. It doesn't mean authority. You have to avoid completely. With such a a man, do not even eat. So, what we're saying is, we have to be understanding, or at least apply things correctly. That when we say tolerate, if somebody offends you, we all offend each other one way or the other. Tolerate that. Be patient with that person. But when it gets to this kind of thing, that's not where we are to tolerate. There's no form of toleration involved here. Because you have to distance yourself from such a person. So while you should be kind then, in your treatment of uh, the believer, so described, that does, that does not really mean you are to tolerate such a person's failure. Even when people fail in that way, we just, you know, we just cannot be patient with them. But it doesn't mean you should tolerate that kind of uh, conduct. So, when we then find ourselves not being patient, not being understanding, not accommodating to certain failures in our fellow believers, then we have shown that we have no love. Now again, like I said, we all offend each other. You know, we're just, that's being human. Because sometimes we may read it wrong and we think somebody offended us when they did not. But that's just the way we feel. Which again, you know, this says that's what they will live. I feel like. Now the Bible tells me. They just feel. Now feeling can be uh, dangerous when it comes to assessing things in your spiritual life. Anyway, another thing though that one could do that implies that one does not have love is if there is no genuine interest in the affairs of other believers in a way to be helpful to them. Notice what I say. If you do not have a genuine concern or interest in the affairs of other believers, in a way to be helpful to them, you do not have love. I know, you know, sometimes, you can tell that people really don't have a genuine interest. I'm going to try to point this things out. So you can actually look and watch it. You're talking to somebody about your problem before you can finish your mouth, they're already talking about something else. At that point, they have no genuine interest on yours. None. They can pretend they do. They do not have one. Because they haven't had time enough to assimilate what you're telling them about your problem. Now they, you know, dismiss yours and bring them back there or whatever that happened to be. So that's something that we have to understand. We are dealing with being genuinely concerned. Being genuine. 
about somebody's uh, problem. Anyway, I, again, of course, uh, I also realize when I say being generally concerned about somebody's interest, I, I, I realize that we live in a society where people treasure their privacy to the point of being idolatrous. Now, probably making it difficult for others to know what the problems of their fellow believers happen to be. Because we're so secretive. Now, sometimes you just wonder, why are we so secretive? Are we doing things right? But because we're so secretive, many times it's difficult to know, have a genuine interest on somebody's problem. Because they've been secretive to you as your fellow believer. I'm not talking an unbeliever. We're not dealing with everything we're studying here has nothing to do with an unbeliever. We're talking about your fellow believers. Make it even narrow it down. We're talking about these few people sitting here every uh, Sunday morning and every Wednesday. Bring it down to that level. If you're so secretive to these individuals, how would they know and have a genuine interest in your affairs? Of course, you know, it goes both ways. We have to be careful. Because once you do that, once you know, you're now duty-bound as a believer not to blabber your mouth and say everything that you've had. But whatever it is, you need to guard against something that somebody confirms against you, uh, to you. Be careful not to uh, divulge it to somebody else. And at this notwithstanding, though, all, all I'm saying is that believers should genuinely take interest in the affairs of fellow believers. Now, let me put it this way. I'm not making a suggestion. I'm issuing a command that you should do so. Am I doing it? No, it's not from me. I am giving you what the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, commands you to do as a believer. According to Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. It reads, Each of you should not look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now this passage does not say that you should not be concerned with your own interests. It doesn't say that. But, that you should also be concerned with the interests of others. Now hence, if a believer forms the habit of not showing concern for the interests of others, that's an indication that the individual does not have love as we are expanding. If you don't show interest. Genuinely. Because if you show a genuine interest. You want to hear it all out. And not only that. You may think about. Can I do something to help? Is there something I can do to help? Whatever the situation is. That's part of being genuine. Now. Still though. Another thing. That implies not having. Love 
that is related to this, the previous one is really shorten one's eyes to the needs of others. Shorten your eyes to the needs of others. So if a person has love, that individual will demonstrate it through rendering help to those who are in need. Now it is because love in action is manifested through helping others that the Holy Spirit, through the human author of Hebrews, commended the recipients of the epistle for demonstrating their love to their fellow believers as we read in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 10. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 10. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 10. It is. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. In other words, when you help your fellow believer, you are showing love to God. That's why he said he won't forget that. Any help you render to a fellow believer, you render it to God. If you can say it that way, I think some of you may change your thinking. And, you know, you, I know you can say, that person, you know, put all the adjectives you want to describe that person as well, what, do you, what do you of your uh, uh, help. But when you put it in perspective, you're not helping that person, regardless of the adjectives you use to describe the individual. But you're doing that in order to honor God. That what you're doing is for God. When you, do, when you have that attitude, uh, everything changes. Anyway, so the Holy Spirit then clarifies to us though that when we do not have love then, we ignore to help those who are in need. Since love will imply coming to, to the aid of somebody that's really in need. Again, I've always said we have to be careful about need. There's a difference between need and want. People want all this, want that. This, no, we're not talking about that. We're talking about your basic need, your basic necessity. Things you have to have to function. Not what, what you want, you know, you can want this, you can want that. That's not worth dealing with. Anyway, when we don't meet those basic needs, then we have shown that we don't have law because God, the Holy Spirit has commanded us, has given us illustration that it is through our action to help that we show love, according to 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. First John First John Chapter 3, verse 17 reads, If anyone has material possessions and see his brothers in need, that's the key thing, in need, not in want, in need, 
but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? So anyhow, these four things then, that we have identified, help us to examine ourselves to know if we have love or not. In other words, we should examine ourselves in light of these four things to help us understand if we have or if we can be described as not having love. That is, that our lifestyle is not characterized by love. That is the focus, of course, of the apostle in this 13th chapter of First Corinthians. In any case, we insist that when the apostle wrote in the verbal phrase of where we're studying First Corinthians chapter 13 verse 1, when he wrote, they have not love. He was concerned with love. That is, of course, the quality of warm or that quality of warm regard for an interest in another that characterizes the lifestyle of a believer and not just something that occurs intermittently. Now we say this because the apostle had indicated that it is possible for a person to exercise the gift of speaking in tongues or language, languages on land without love. That makes it when he said that, if you did that without love, that makes it quite interesting. And you say, why? Well, see, here's the thing. It's inconceivable that a person could genuinely, that is what I use, genuinely, because there are people who can exercise uh, speaking in tongues, but it's not from the God the Holy Spirit. But if a person could genuinely exercise such a gift, then it's impossible to conceive how such can happen without the person being controlled by the Holy Spirit. Think about it. If a person is genuinely speaking in tongues, and the Holy Spirit is not in him, that can happen. But it also, what, what the apostle says, but have not love. A person who speaks in tongues. Now, when he speaks in tongues, it's assumed, rightfully so, that the Holy Spirit is in control. Now you say, here's the thing. A person who is filled of the Holy Spirit by implication, by implication, has love. Because we know that love is an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit according to Galatians chapter 5 verse 22. Galatians chapter 5 verse 22. It reads, Galatians chapter 5 verse 22 reads, May the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Goodness, faithfulness. And so, if the fruit, an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit is love, 
Now, this being the case, it is difficult to see how the apostle could say that a person who exercises the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues does not inwardly possess love. Because if the Holy Spirit controlled that person, when the person, the author, whatever it was, inwardly the person has, has this aspect of, of the fruit of the Spirit, love. So when the apostles say, if you did that and you don't have law, that actually is some problem. Seems to be a conflict. So consequently, the way though to avoid this implied conflict is that the apostle is concerned not with a momentary possession of love as part of the fruit of the Spirit, but but the love that characterizes the lifestyle of a person who is habitually filled of the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's not talking about that moment. Because at that moment, the person who speaks in tongues is controlled by the Holy Spirit. And inwardly, because the Holy Spirit controls the fruit of the Spirit has to be there, which is love. So the person must have it. So if he says, you do speak in tongues, but you don't have love... Then the only way we resolve that is to say, he's not talking about something momentary. He's not talking about something that's a habit. Because if you're habitually, now we know no human being, no believer is filled 24 7 uh, of the Holy Spirit. None. I'm, I'm sure if that happens to you, you your body will explode. No, that doesn't happen. We, you know, we go. In and out, in and out. In one minute you feel of the spirit. Ten seconds later you out. Ten seconds you go back. And no one goes just a straight line. If you did that, then, like I say, you'll be out of this war already. Anyway, all the same, the apostle is concerned with a lifestyle. If your lifestyle is characterized by love, that means you are much more habitually controlled of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit controls you much more. In other words, there are some some believers, they will go a whole month. They're not even controlled by the Holy Spirit. Even years, not controlled by the Holy Spirit. But if you have grown enough, and you're growing, it may be, like I said, you may be controlled by the Holy Spirit, for an hour. And ten seconds later, you have to have fellowship with the Holy Spirit and you confess your sin and come back and He controls you. So a believer who can even go for five minutes and, uh, and, and will not recognize that he or she is not controlled by the Holy Spirit is in trouble. He or she is not really getting it. Of course, I always say this and uh, I know and I, you know, God keeps vindicating what I tell you here. Some of you may not know, but I do say it. I keep saying many times, I don't have the conviction that everyone here sitting now listening to me is getting what I'm teaching. I don't believe that. I wish I could, but I just don't. You are here, all right, but you're not getting it. You're not, you're not hearing what I'm saying. Proof of it? Your action. And I have uh, not many proofs to... Uh, back on what I'm saying. That you can see down there. Weeks, months, years. And you're not getting it. Don't know what it's all about. 
Sure, you are here, but you don't know what it's all about. Because you're not getting it. And that, to me, will be a terrible place to be in. Anyway. So all the same, though, the apostles' first assertion is that the exercise of the gifts of speaking in tongues without a life characterized by love is meaningless. In that, it gives a confusing message. Confusing message. Now, the idea of meaninglessness that gives confusion or confusing message is communicated in the last sentence of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1 that we're studying. It reads, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Now the apostle used two words in the last sentence of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 1 that appears only here in the Greek New Testament. And two words that appear at least twice in the Greek New Testament. The first word that appears only once in the Greek New Testament is that word resounding, resounding. That is translated from a Greek word that means to produce a sound or noise not involving human speech. That is simply to make a noise or simply to ring out. Of course, the Greek word is used in the Septuagint though with the meaning of to sound or to roar. Nonetheless, it is in the sense of to give off a certain sound or sounds that the word is used in our passage. So that word, when we say resounding, giving off sound. The second word that appears only once in the Greek New Testament is the word symbol. That is translated from a Greek word that means symbol, alright, that is a metal basin also using ritual observances that makes a shrill sound or loud crashing sound when two of them were struck together or against each other. It is this word that is used in the Septuagint to describe such a thing where you get two kind of you know, dish metals and bang them together. So this is what we find in Psalm 150, verse 5. Psalms. So the, the Greek word kumbelion is used in the Septuagint of Psalm 150, verse 5. Because here it reads, Praise him with a clash of symbols. Praise him with a clash of symbols. In other words, Methodists, clap them together. Praise him with resounding symbols. Also, according to the authorities, the function of the symbols was less musical than liturgical, as they say, being used as signals for the singing to begin 
And between the sections of the Psalms. So that they will use it when they hit it. That means begin. And when they went to pause, they can also hit it again. That's not what the authorities think it was used for in, in Psalms. Anyhow, it is really some way a musical instrument of some sort. Now the first word that appears at least twice in the Greek New Testament of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 1 is the word gong that is translated from a Greek word that may refer to a metal of various types such as copper, brass, or bronze. As that one as involved in uh, commercial enterprise or in commerce, as it is used to describe the wedding of merchants in Revelation because of God's judgment in Revelation chapter 18 verse 12. Revelation Revelation chapter 18 verse 12 reads Cargoes of gold silver precious stones and pearls fine linen purple silk and scarlet cloth every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, uh, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble. Now, the Greek word can be, can be used to translate the bronze here or other kinds of things. Now, the word, the word may actually refer to anything then made of the kind of metal that we mentioned previously. So it may then mean something like money, money, as it is used to describe what people gave in the temple that caused the Lord Jesus Christ to commend, eventually to commend a widow for what she gave, uh, which is proportionally, as far as proportion is concerned, is much bigger than those who put a lot of money. And that uh, our word is used in terms of money, really, in Mark chapter 14. Verse, I mean, chapter 12, verse 41. Mark chapter 12, verse 41. Mark chapter 12, verse 41. Mark chapter 12, verse 41 reads, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watch the crowd put in their money. That word money uh, is the same Greek word translated gang into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts and if you go home you read the rest and see how a woman put all she got and she was the Lord commended her. Now in our passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 1 the Greek word has the meaning of gang that is a metal disc with a trimmed or toned rim giving a, a, a resonating note when, you, when struck. So, again, authorities are not in agreement 
with what this really is. Now some take the view that it is a musical instrument, while others tell us that a gong placed at the rear of a Greek amphitheater served as a kind of acoustic amplification. In other words, something to amplify the sound. Well, so, according to this interpretation then, it is not really an object that is intended as a musical instrument to give tunes, but maybe consistently, I mean tunes that can be consistently recognized. It says it's really not that kind of thing. Now, so the various interpretations do not withstand them. It seems that the apostle meant a gong as a, some kind of musical instrument because of its as, uh, association with symbol. That is, for the most part, uh, a musical instrument. Now, the second word that appears at least twice in the Greek of New Testament of chapter, or in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 1, is that word clanging, clanging. It is translated from a Greek word that may mean to cry out loudly in a well by people over one that died. Hence the word may mean to wail loudly. So as it is used to describe what people were doing in the house of a synagogue leader, whose daughter died but was raised to life uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ as recorded in Mark chapter 5 verse 38 Mark chapter 5 verse 38 it is when they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. That wailing loudly is the same Greek word translated clanging. In our passage though, of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 1, it is used then in the sense of to clang, that is to make a loud, uh, resonant, repeating noise or simply metallic sound. Now the metaphors that involve objects that make sounds that are meaningless and confusing, the apostle used to describe one who exercises the gift of, of speaking in tongues, but does not operate in, uh, in lifestyle characterized by love. Those, these metaphors are intended to convey a specific message. Therefore, the apostle means that a person who exercises the gift of speaking in tongues but does not live a life that is characterized or a life characterized by love sends a confusing message to others. And some of you may have run into people. But before I go into this kind of people, but let me try to explain so you know when I mention people you understand what I'm talking about. So, we're saying a person can speak in tongues, but if they don't have this constant habitual demonstration of love, then they're sending a confusing message. Now, how, you may ask? It is that there is then the assumption that 
A person who speaks in tongues in a local church during worship is under the control of the Holy Spirit. So, if such a person does not live a life that is characterized by love, the person sends a mixed message that implies that it is permissible to live a life without love and still be controlled by the Holy Spirit, as evident in the exercise of the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. And so people may wonder how a person who is supposedly uh, is controlled by the Holy Spirit functions in a way that does not reflect a, fa- a facet of the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. So, what I'm saying is some of you may have run into people, and they claim to speak in tongues. I don't dispute them. I'm not saying they do or don't. But if they claim to be, but when you look at their lifestyle, it doesn't reflect anything about that the Holy Spirit is leading them. That immediately is what I'm talking about. That's a confusing message. Because they are now, they are not sending you a confusing message. So the point is that if a person's lifestyle does not reflect what the individual claims, that is sending a confusing message to other people. Apostle Paul had already communicated to the Corinthians that his lifestyle or way of life is consistent with what he teaches as we have already started in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. First Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. First Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 reads, For this reason I am sending to you, Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some of course take the phrase, my way of life, in in this passage, as a reference only to Apostle Paul's conduct, since the phrase, my way, is a semantic expression indicating a person's conduct. Now others take the phrase, my way of life, as a reference only to the doctrines taught by the apostle. The truth though is that the apostle meant both, that is, his doctrine and his conduct. Now the apostle is aware that if a person's teaching does not agree with the individual's lifestyle, the person sends a confusing message to those who hear the individual. It is because the apostle recognizes that it is proper to teach one, I mean that it's not really, it's improper to teach one way and live contrary to what one teaches that he uh, under the directives of the Holy Spirit instructed Timothy regarding the importance of ensuring that one's lifestyle agrees with one's doctrine, according to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. It is, Watch your life, and doctrine closely. 
trust with you in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So the instruction to Timothy implies that those who teach the word of God should be careful that their lifestyles reflect what they teach. Of course, some of us may say that they are not teachers or pastors. Therefore, this does not apply to them, but that will be incorrect. Every believer is called upon to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Being a witness for Jesus Christ involves not only verbally telling people about him and salvation that is in him, but also demonstrating the impact of that salvation that he brings in the life of a person. Now I think that here is where most of us Christians uh, find ourselves. We tell the world about the love of Jesus Christ, but our conduct does not reflect that. You see, there are some Christians, they, they can put the Bible like this, like if you, you know, but their conduct doesn't reflect one thing that they put. Nothing. That's what we're dealing with here. So, when this happens, we send a confusing message to the wall of unbelievers. They will not see the need for salvation if our lifestyle uh, do not reflect what we claim about salvation. So anyway, we are saying that all we are saying is that a person who uh, exercises such gifts as speaking in tongues but fails to live a life characterized by love sends a confused message to those who uh, know the individual's lifestyle that that do not agree uh, uh, with being controlled by the Holy Spirit. Thus then, we emphasize that the first assertion of the Holy Spirit through Apostle uh, Paul is that the exercise of the gift of speaking in tongues without a life characterized by love is meaningless in that he gives a confusing message. This brings me to the second assertion, and that's what we pick up after break.